John 1. Turn, please, to John's Gospel, the first chapter. Who was born in Bethlehem? That is the theme for tonight. And I'm drawing your attention to John 1. And although much of the chapter could be considered, we're going to focus our attention just on the first verse. However, we'll take time to read the opening 18 verses, which form the, the prologue. John sets the scene for what he is endeavoring to relay to his audience. And his goal is to get people to believe. And in believing, not just believing that there was a man who was in the world and did these great things and miracles, but that this one is unlike any other. And so in revealing that, he begins to pepper us with truths that he is going to develop through his gospel. It won't be as historically full. He's not going to give as many details in terms of the life of Christ. Instead, he's going to hone in on particular statements, on particular miracles that magnify the focus that he wants to give attention to. And if you're familiar with the gospel, you will pick up on that even as we read the opening 18 verses. So let's read the Word of God. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. He came on to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. 
he hath declared him. Amen. Ending the reading at the 18th verse. May God bless his word. Let's pray, beloved. Let's seek the Lord again. Lord, we ask for help that not only would we be conscious of the historic truth, the reality of Jesus Christ, but that it would be the governing truth of our lives. John is not writing of the Son of God that we may merely know about him. He is writing about the Son of God so that we may bow before him and worship him. Oh, that this transformation would take place in our hearts. More worship. That we, like those of old in Bethlehem, who came, who saw, who worshipped, that we by faith might respond to the gospel, to see it and believe. Lord, should there be any here still in a condition of unbelief, give them ears to hear. Change their hearts. Build thy kingdom. And may all of us love Christ more. Empower us now to preach and to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A year before my conversion, that's 2002 for those who don't know, the renowned physicist Stephen Hawking published a book, The Universe in a Nutshell. Part of his intention, from what I recall, was to try and give an even more, I think, <laughs> a brief history of time, which was his famous work, uh, was an attempt to try and give his, his views and ideas in, in layman's terms and then realized that he needed to come even lower <laughs> and that we all needed pictures and diagrams to try and figure out and have any way of reaching up to the great concepts that he was trying to simplify for those of us of lesser mental capacity. He deals with all sorts of things, the commencement of the universe, time, how the universe might have multiple possible histories. I think that was one of his own theories that he pushed in that book, string theory and so on and so forth. And of course, for Hawking, everything in life is nothing more than physics. Bottom line, your existence, everything, why you're here, how you are to be, it all comes down to physics. And with such meaninglessness, we can be thankful that common grace preserves men from the natural outcome of their chosen philosophy. God mercifully makes men to be inconsistent. It would appear to me that many scientists, for many scientists, if I can put it this way, their inherent curiosity is what keeps them alive. The desire to discover is stronger than the meaninglessness of their discoveries. Because when you think about it, when you follow logically through what many of them propose with regard to the emptiness of, of our existence and 
just that this is all chance, our existence and so on. When you follow that through, you say, well, what's the point of any of this? But as I say, they're, they're mercifully inconsistent, mercifully inconsistent. And as I say, the desire to discover this driving curiosity that is part of the image of God in them, actually. This driving curiosity is stronger than the meaninglessness of their discoveries. For John, however, man's purpose is straightforward. I say straightforward, yet impossible. Man's purpose is that he might believe and live for God, that he might know God. And this, which is impossible for man, is made possible by the Incarnation, by God revealing himself to man. No man has seen God at any time, we read in verse 18. How are we to know what is hidden? It must be revealed. And that's the heart of the Incarnation. God is revealing before the Incarnation, but the Incarnation forms the, the heart of the truth that God reveals Himself to men. And reveals Himself in such a way to meet the need of men. Not just that He says, here is who I am, because that would be meaningless, wouldn't it? That God simply says, here is who I am, but there you are, lost, undone, in sin, hell-bound, with nothing you can do about it. And God says, here's who I am. I'm going to reveal myself to you and leave it there. That would bring only more despair. We may rightly ask the question, why does he reveal himself when he's not going to help? But he does. He sends his son to help, to save Earlier last week, that's actually where my mind was drawn. I was thinking of preaching from Matthew 1. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He's given that name, designated that, so that we would know the reason why God came to this world. The Lord Jesus prays, and the record of it is given in this gospel, this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So the knowledge, the knowledge of God is tied into life. This is life eternal, that they might know thee. So God is not simply revealing himself. He is revealing himself savingly. He is revealing himself redemptively. He is revealing himself that we might be brought to life from the dead that is inherent to us all. What I want us to reflect on here in John 1, verse 1, is just some of the things. And again, there's, there's so much here. When we ask the question, who was born in Bethlehem, we're not giving a full answer. I'm just giving the answer as it is on the surface of the first verse of John's gospel. And I want you to think about it. And you're thinking about, I hope you do, I hope you think about why are we doing what we're doing. I know we've spent the, the entire month of December in this church, considering this, getting ourselves to the cross, considering the whole purpose and all of this. We've, we've spent a whole month doing this, and yet we come right to the cusp here on what's known as Christmas Eve and all the, 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 the festivities that are, are perfectly fine. I have absolutely no opposition to festivities. We, we should 
engage in festivities. There's something about that. It's, it's, you have it. God gives to His people festivals to, to Israel. He recognizes the importance of, of having moments through the year that are, are, are kind of points, points of, of recognizing certain truths or pondering certain things and maybe even reevaluating where we are and trying to calibrate our lives spiritually so that we get to where we ought to be. And so it can be at this time of the year. And when you think of that one born in the city of David, I want you just to pause here on how John introduces him. In the very first verse of this gospel. Note with me three things. The first of which is his eternality. And I'm just, I'm keeping it really, well, I'm trying to keep it really simple tonight and straightforward. The eternality of this one. In the beginning was the Word. This gospel begins very differently to all the others. You will know that if you are familiar with the New Testament. But like the others, John wants us to know that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. We have that in the other Gospels in various ways expressed. But unlike Matthew and Luke, who do this by narrating the history of the birth of Jesus Christ and the fact that he was conceived of the Holy Ghost in Mary, John gives us a theological introduction of Christ's existence, not merely at the point of his birth, but before. Who is this one born? His existence predates all other existing things. In the beginning was the Word. That's profound. Because John is not simply stating this in a vacuum. You're meant to make the connection to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. That connection can't be missed. John knows that the vast majority of people will have some familiarity with the Old Testament Scriptures. And so he draws from that very truth how it all begins. In the beginning, God. Here he says, in the beginning was the Word. He is driving at the eternality of this one that we worship, that we serve, and the one who came into this world to save us. In a statement where one might expect only God to exist, John says the Word existed. The Word existed. He is declaring His deity. He is giving us a glimpse of one who is eternal in His being. Now, when we speak of the eternality of God, we are dealing with a truth that's, if I can parallel it with his, God's immensity, we talk about the immensity of God, we're saying that there's no bounds to God, that there's no boundary of place where He's there and He's not over here. There's no boundary. In terms of eternality, you're taking that same reality except you're applying it to time. There's, there's no boundary made by time around God. He's eternal. He's always existed. Moses deals with this in the psalm that we have, the oldest psalm in the Bible. Maybe turn there to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. One of the things the psalms focus upon is exalting God, making God big. The psalms are often prayers. 
They're expressions of man worshiping God. Sometimes it is just an expression of worship and we don't know the context. At other times, it is worship that is brought before God despite everything seemingly going astray, life falling apart. We, we read our, our, our weekly reading brought us to Psalm 39 this morning. We saw in that psalm, if you were paying attention, David broke them, broke them. You, you ponder the lines of that psalm. It's one of the most instructive psalms, I might say. I'm careful saying the most, whatever. All the psalms are instructive, but there's a lot of instruction in Psalm 39. Because here's a man who has power, who has authority, who has people who obey his word, and yet he is broken. Broken to the point he, he's afraid to speak lest God deniers would hear his language that might question. They might start thinking David's questioning his God. David's faith is floundering. And so instead of even possibly giving the wicked an opportunity to doubt, he says nothing. He's silent. He sees his own frailty and how he has been these blows of God upon his own life. He sits the very hand of God. It's causing him to wilt. The Psalms bring us to exalt and worship God, whatever our circumstances. And in the oldest Psalm of all, you see this. Psalm 90, the prayer of Moses, the man of God, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, this is Moses. He looks back to the patriarchs. And he recognizes that the people of God find consistently their dwelling, their habitation in God. Think of his context. When he, when he looks back to the patriarchs that are wandering around, seeking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, promised a, a, a land that would signify what is to come in the great eternal day. But they have nowhere really to call home. And then you come to Moses' day and you have the same thing. You have a people who are in Egypt. This is not their home. So the patriarchs, didn't have a real place to call home. And Moses' generation was for a long time in the, the, same, the same feeling, right up to the point of his death. There's no real sense of belonging in this world. There's no address to say, here's, here's where we live. Here is home. Maybe you feel the same way. <laughs> I spent a good portion of the last 20 years traveling from this country to that country, going all over the place. And, you know, at times you can kind of feel a little, like you have no place to call home. The, place, the land where you're born, in one sense, that in a form is home. But every part you live in for any length of time becomes home. You find a piece of you is left in all these places in the world. There's a piece of me in Australia, a piece of me in Canada. There's a piece of me in the United Kingdom. And, of course, there's a piece of me here as well. But the one unifying truth for all the people of God, regardless of where they are, is thou hast been our dwelling place. 
We go to God. We find in God the place where we belong. And we rest there in all generations. Before the mountains, here's the eternality of God. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He is dealing with the same truth that John brings out in the opening language of his gospel. This God that we worship is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return ye children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep in the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. We're, we are frail. So, such a gulf between God and men. So this is the one that John directs us to. The same language that Moses uses is found in Psalm 93 verse 2, Thou art from everlasting. Psalm 41 13, Blessed be God from everlasting to everlasting. You have this, this very Christ-centered chapter in Proverbs. Now, all of Proverbs is pointing to Christ, but this is very evident when you see wisdom personified in Proverbs 8. And in Proverbs 8, when wisdom is personified, it says, I was set up from everlasting. Now what Solomon is doing there, he's getting our mind upon this, this personification of wisdom. Wisdom's not just the, the details that fill our minds, allowing us to make correct decisions through our lives. Wisdom is, is tied into a relationship. Wisdom's tied into the knowledge of God. Wisdom flows from God. 1 Corinthians 1, Christ has made unto us wisdom. The wisdom of the people of God is founded, founded upon Christ. A man without Christ is a fool. A man without Christ has no real wisdom. He may make good decisions in life. He may become exceedingly successful, but he doesn't have the wisdom of God's Word if he ignores the very source of wisdom. So wisdom gets personified in Proverbs 8. And this wisdom is from everlasting. I was set up from everlasting. Now this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John is saying. In the beginning was the Word. He is going back to a time before there was time. And he is saying, here he is. This one, he says in verse 14, the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us, he is, he is making it clear then that when you gaze upon Jesus, you're gazing upon one who predates time itself. Can you comprehend it? You're not meant to. You're not meant to. It's like these scientists trying to comprehend what appears to be almost an endless universe. Isn't it wonderful how God enables man to continually explore and learn and 
And yet it still seems to like just extending out of man's full grasp and reach no matter how far they go. The same we think of God. There are things revealed to us and we grasp it like the scientists. So here's something we now know. And then, and yet it seems to open up more. There's more that's just out of our grasp. Of course, the eternality of Christ has not gone without attack. Arius, a third century heretic, was among those most well-known for going against this truth, arguing that Jesus was a created being. You have that great council in 325 AD that debates this whole issue for two months. Arius is pronounced a heretic. This is not what the Bible teaches. And we have now a Nicene Creed that articulates so carefully and powerfully the true nature and person of the Son of God. So his, etern- or his, his eternality, secondly, his personality. His personality. And I was kind of battling with the wording here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So there's a couple of ways in which we can take this. The Word was with God. The other word I thought about using for this is community. But personality focuses upon the fact that this is a real being. And the real being is in fellowship. You have the persons of the Godhead in this perfect expression of fellowship. Some have translated this language that he was face to face with God. That's the sense of the language. That's the idea that you have here. The word was with God. What do you mean with God? Face to face with God. In this fellowship with God, in this communion with God. Here, the one who is eternal is constantly in this condition of fellowship with God. Now, I thought about that, and I thought about how John, in one sense, does something that is definitely distinct, but akin to what Luke and Matthew do as well. Luke and Matthew give us some of the details of the family context of our Savior coming into the world. We see Joseph, we see Mary, we see Elizabeth, and we see others who are there surrounding that scene around the the kind of family and community of of those there at that time comes into view, which is is wonderful in and of itself because I think sometimes at this this time of the year, you always get certain individuals who come out of the woodwork at this time of the year kind of reeling on any acknowledgement of the incarnation almost. It's like they want to make everyone else miserable for even giving any attention to the fact of the incarnation. But one of the things this time of the year does is it pulls us together, doesn't 
They should. And traditionally, that's what it's done. People are off work. That's a mercy. People get to spend time with their families. That's a mercy. And it's around something that, that we see when we read all the passages in Matthew and Luke particularly, we have this, this kind of family community scene that's right there. But John pushes us back further. John actually gives to us why there exists even family and community and fellowship in the world in the first place. It comes out of the fact that God is in fellowship. The three persons of the triune Godhead are in continual fellowship. Perfect fellowship. From all eternity to all eternity. I can't explain it. I can't give to you how that looks. I can't articulate all that's involved in that. I just know it is. That's what John is saying, that, that the Word, this one who takes flesh, eternally existed with the Father in communion with the Father, in fellowship with the Father, in this eternal expression of communion that, again, gets us beyond our capability to explain. So what we're seeing then is that just as God is when we think of the Father, we're thinking of a person. We're thinking also of the, the eternal Logos is a person as well. And they're, they're, they're in this, this, this fellowship. It is a wonderful thing that we note the personality of the Word. That we have one who is a real person. That we're not just dealing with some distant entity. The blessings of life that we have, what you're going to enjoy, what you enjoy now in the church, what you enjoy tomorrow with your family and friends, I trust all of those things are expressions of the fact that we are made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God, we can feel and experience a level of intimacy that goes beyond what any other created creature can enjoy. I've dealt with this before. Can other creatures communicate? Sure. But as Dr. Overly was going through and reminding us in our Sunday school this morning, giving us some of the way in which Handel puts music to the, the text of Scripture going through the various verses, he is doing so in a way where he... I can't remember the language he used when he was quoting that musicologist or whatever, <laughs> but that, that philosopher, and he was, but the idea of, of and the words are being enveloped in music that carries the sense of it even more powerfully into us, into our hearts, that we see the truth even more powerfully illustrated by music. Think of that. Think, think of how we can formulate words and language and we can communicate in poetry Never mind just regular prose. In poetry and in lofty language, we can give a sense of what we're feeling, what we're going through, what we desire, our, our wishes and our hopes and our dreams and our heartaches and our pain and suffering. And then we can add music to that to carry that message. And universally, universally, we can, we can understand 
We can understand that, that that's what's being carried to us, not just the words, but the very melody in which it's being carried. This all flows from God in fellowship with Himself, the persons of the Godhead in eternal communion, and the, again, the, the, the unimaginable extent of that fellowship. Where even if I had the, the tongue of an angel, I couldn't begin to express to you what that fellowship looks like because it exceeds the boundary of language. I mean, even our fellowship exceeds language sometimes, doesn't it? Where we, we feel things that we can't express. Where we feel about someone in a way that we, we can't really put words to what we're feeling. This is why we're drawn to those who are more gifted than we are when they write poetry and write songs and music and so on to try and give words to what we're feeling. But that doesn't even scrape the surface of the fellowship and the love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You consider that child born. You're looking in the face of one who is God and in his human form right there in Bethlehem. You can't articulate a sentence. He can't express himself at all except in what we know is true about all infants, even if there's hymns that cut against it and say no crying he makes. The only way he can express is in the regular normal agony and want and desire of an infant crying for what are a number of reasons that can be counted on a few fingers. That's the only kind of ability he has there. But you're looking still at one who is God. This is where our minds cannot, we can't conceive of this. This is why these, these hymns are written. This, some of the language tries to open our mind to the, the incomprehensible reality of God taking flesh. Finally, his divinity. His divinity. It's made really plain in the last clause, and the word was God. The word was God. Now, John states this. Of course, you may know that there are those heretical groups out there that will argue against the translation here. If you ever meet a Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's False Witness is what I was going to say, because <laughs> that's what they really are. If you ever meet them, they will bring out their New World Translation and they will show you that Jesus is not God. And they will go to John 1, they will read verse 1, a God. That's how it's translated, a God. Now, I'm not going to 
bore you with the Greek grammar relating to how when two nouns are paired together with the, the to be connecting verb there is. Um, I'm not going to bore you with all of that uh, and how the definite article is implied. But <laughs> there's no denying it. And even if you were to try to deny it, John's gospel is written in such a way that anyone who's willing to actually study it can see that what John does is substantiate that statement. The word was God. Everything about the book, everything about the book is just screaming, screaming at us. This is God. The I am statements that shouldn't be able to be made about a man can be made about this man because he is the God man. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The, I am the light of the world. These statements are made because it is true only of God. But this is who stands before you, made flesh. God. John does a wonderful thing, actually, when he, he's arguing the whole point. He's, he's convincing you the entire way that you might believe. That's his, that's his goal, to get you to believe. And it's a journey. It's a journey he takes you on to, to believe this. This is, this is God, made flesh. And as he does so, as I mentioned, highlighting particular uh, miracles, like he begins... He began, what do we, what's the first thing the Bible throws at us concerning what we know about God? That he creates. He creates. What's the first miracle John records? Water made to wine. Creative power. That's, and that's the way it goes. He is constantly showing you things that could only be true about God. And then you have one of his disciples who is devout and following him, but because of the cross and his... The lack of his presence on the day of his resurrection, he is in despair. He, he's, <laughs> he doesn't believe. Poor Thomas is, is struggling with all that's going on. His life has been blown apart. And as John brings you to the very end, now I say, I say the end. John's gospel has what we might for, say is a kind of postscript. Chapter 21 is like a postscript. It's kind of, by the way, here are the things to be aware of. But when he's leading you through the general kind of argument of what he's aiming towards... He ends it in chapter 20 with this doubting disciple falling on his knees before Jesus and saying, my Lord, my God. He is convinced. He truly believes it. And that's exactly what the purpose of the gospel is all about, to get you to see this and to, to fall down like Thomas did and say, my Lord, my God, not just God. But to truly believe the gospel means that it has to be personalized. You have to say, my God. He is my God. I wonder, can you say it? Maybe as we have spent these last weeks going through some of the texts found in Handel's Messiah, dealing with themes that relate to the incarnation, singing all the pieces. My question is, as you ponder what 
This is all about, do you know Jesus to be your Lord, your God? Now, you can't say that lightly. You can't. Because as soon as you're brought there, it changes everything about your life. You're no longer the boss. You're no longer the one holding on to the steering wheel of your life. My Lord, my God, is a governing principle, is a truth that changes everything. Everything. This word was made flesh. As verse 14 says, eternal, and beyond our comprehension, takes flesh. And as John writes, dwelt among us. Early last week, dear brother in this congregation sent to me a quote from a Puritan, Stephen Sharnock, and didn't give a source. It was something he came across. He just forwarded it to me, I think. And uh, of course, you learn, you learn. Before you start sharing quotes, you always try to find them. Where did this come from? And I learned that a long time ago. And even as I was looking for this, it was attributed, I think one of the places I, when I was looking for, I was trying, where is this from? It was actually attributed to Thomas Goodwin. And I was like, is it Goodwin or is it Sharnock? So I had to figure it out. Anyway, I found it. It's in Sharnock's The Existence and Attributes of God. So he's dealing with the existence and attributes of God. I want you to listen to how Sharnock relates what is going on in the incarnation. He deals with the theology of it. But the theology of it is to lead us to worship. Follow me, or follow Charlotte. He writes, The divine nature is not turned into the human, nor the human into the divine. One nature doth not swallow up another and make a third nature distinct from each of them. The deity is not turned into the humanity. So what he's dealing with is what we refer to as the hypostatic union. The union of the two natures in one person. God and man united in one person. So he's dealing with that. And he's making clear that there's no confusion. There's no mixing of the natures. He goes on to say the deity cannot be changed because the nature of it is to be unchangeable. It would not be deity if it were mortal and capable of suffering. The humanity is not changed into the deity, for then Christ could not have been a sufferer. If the humanity had been swallowed up into the deity, it had lost its own distinct nature and put on the nature of the deity and consequently been incapable of suffering. Finite can never by any mixture be changed into infinite, nor infinite into finite. So there's the theology. 
There's the keeping distinct, the two natures in one person, not mixed, but very God of very God and very man of very man. Then he says this, Now let us consider what a wonder of power is all this. The knitting of a noble soul to a body of clay. Here he's dealing with man. Here's how Adam was made. The knitting of a noble soul to a body of clay was not so great an exploit of almightiness as the espousing of infinite and finite together. Man is further distant from God than man from nothing. I need to pause on that because when I first read that, I'm like, so man, where man is, to nothing, right? However, that, now that seems like infinite, doesn't it? How you relate how distant man is from nothing. But whatever that distance is, it's not as far as what man is from God. Man is further distant from God than man from nothing. What a wonder is it that two natures, infinitely distant, you're looking into the face when you behold like Simeon lifting up the infant child, looking into the face of that infant child. You're looking at one person and yet there is represented there two natures, infinitely distant, they have no business being anywhere near one another. No business. There's no business for God to take humanity. It is the most amazing truth you will ever hear. You will never hear a more amazing truth in your life though you become a philosopher and study all the wondrous conundrums to study. You will never come across a more amazing truth and God and man united in one person. We sit here and I, I pity you because you, you don't have a very capable preacher to try and deal with these lofty things. You really don't. Because this is unbelievable. And I don't possess the capability. That's why I'm leaning on Charlotte to try and help me here. Get it across to you. You're looking there. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Stop, man. Stop what you're doing. Worship. Worship. If you're not worshiping, you don't get it. If you're not worshiping, you've missed it. If you're not worshiping, there's a huge disconnect. We can't begin to understand this. What a wonder is it that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world and yet without any confusion that the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love that they astonish men upon earth. 
and angels in heaven. Astonished men on earth. Have we gone beyond the astonishment, have we? Are we afflicted with the same disease as the religious leaders had whenever the Magi came wondering where the Christ should be born? Oh, it's here in the prophet, Micah. Bethlehem of Judea. The Magi take off. And Herod and the rest of them Oh, there's, there's some curiosity, there's some worry, there's concern in Herod, the idea that he's king of the Jews. But, but there's no sense of worship. There's no comprehension. All the religious leaders, they're, they're meant to be teaching and preaching this every Sabbath day in the synagogue. They're meant to be saying, like, here's the one that we're awaiting. Here's the, the seed of the woman we're, we're, we're desiring, we're praying for, we're, we're looking, like, just like Simeon got it. But they didn't get it. And I think that's what is the, the blight across most churches, certainly in this country, in the West. I mean, you spend all this time singing Wesley's wonderfully articulated truths of the incarnation and heart the herald, and, and all these other, this language that is designed to evoke worship from us, and we with this, these, these dead hearts, I mean, really, we with dead hearts sing of the most inconceivable truth. Oh, beloved, come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. That is the only right response. It astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. Would that some of us were more astonished. May God help us. May come into our homes and in some fresh way enable us to stand amazed. Let's bow together in prayer. Is there someone here still not yet converted? Is there someone here not yet saved? Boy or girl, young or old, frequent attender, or maybe here for the first time. This mission of the Son of God into the world was an order that man may be saved. And that salvation you can have by confessing your sin and crying out for mercy. This is not this, this these truths that we have pondered briefly tonight are not just demonstrations of divine power but of divine love 
and that love is willing to save. If you need any help in finding your way into the arms of Christ and knowing his mercy, I'll be glad to open the scriptures and answer your questions, help you whatever way I can. Lord, bless by word. We need grace because we are dull. I am dull. Oh, that the astonishment that is fitting for the truth of the incarnation would fall upon every heart and soul. That we would still weep at the thought that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We pray, Father, that we would not grow weary of this old, old story. That we would see in it all the hope of our lives and all the need of our souls. Bless the families here. Bless our church family. Again, remember those already with family or Wherever they are found, be with them. And those of us here, grant us grace to enjoy this truth. Not in some vain way, but in a spirit and attitude of worship. To that end, increase our faith. May we, like John, so desired, may we believe and cry out, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Bless the household of faith. Be with all, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.